0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you.
1: Well, just It's the
0: Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Rima Rattan. Among the many underlying problematic social issues this COVID-19 pandemic has had the interesting effect of magnifying is how journalism is done in Australia. Journalist conduct during the press conferences held daily by Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews during Victoria's second lockdown in particular attracted much criticism on social media channels such as Twitter. Today I'm talking about who journalists are accountable to, with Ingrid Matthews and Tim Dunlop, both avid tweeters but also so much more than that. Ingrid teaches law and philosophy and researches law, its philosophy and the creation of criminality. And Tim is a writer based in Melbourne who writes on Australian and U.S. politics and the media, as well as writing books about the future of work. Tim, you've written an essay about this in Mianjin. Would you like to start by telling us what led to that?
2: I was asked by the editor, Jonathan Grant to write that piece, and I sent it through to him, and it was a little longer than I think he anticipated. That it was going to be and he said how long did it take you to write this and I said 20 years <laughs> uh, because really you know those those issues have been going around in my head for 20 years since the early 2000s when um, I kind of got interested in all of this stuff accidentally when I was living in the United States and started a blog over there which was started like a lot of political blogs um, was started in the wake of the 9-11 attacks against the United States. And what people like me who started blogging at that time discovered was that we weren't very happy with the way the media was covering the issues. And not not only that, it was just blindingly obvious to a, a great many of us that what they were saying was factually incorrect or they were buying into government narratives that were clearly either wrong or ridiculous or slanted in a very particular way, particularly the issue around Saddam Hussein's supposed possession of weapons of mass destruction. This seemed blindingly obviously wrong. All the facts were there. But what what was so fascinating about that time was that as a citizen blogger, if you like, you actually had access to all the information that that used to be the preserve of journalists. You know, we could read the interviews and the reports coming out of the UN, the weapons inspectors' reports, et cetera, et cetera. And it became clear once you access that sort of information that the story that was coming through the media was wrong. So, in other words, the Mianjin piece goes back a long way to a certain dissatisfaction amongst engaged audience members with the way that journalists present information in the form of news. And as you say, the COVID pandemic has brought this to light in a way that is, is probably unique. And as you say, the Dan Andrews... Um, press conferences were a big part of this, so I don't think they were actually the, the press conferences were unique in that it was the first time we'd got to see the sausage made, as um, as some people put it. But it was a particular moment where the interests of the media class clashed quite strongly with the interests of the the audience, the rest of us. Because of the existence mainly of Twitter as a platform where audiences could interact with journalists or at least express their own views about the journalism that was being done, it created quite a lot of tension between audiences and journalists. And there just suddenly seemed to be this insane number of articles published in the mainstream media criticizing the critiques that the journalists were getting on Twitter. And they were just so obviously partial and self-serving and oblivious to the actual nature of the criticism that they were getting that I just felt I had to respond. So that's where the Mianjin piece came from. So as I say, it was kind of 20 years in the making, but the proximate cause were these ridiculous articles that kept appearing criticising people on, mainly on Twitter, actually.
0: And what was the criticism that people were facing?
2: The criticism, as I saw it, was that it was probably twofold. There was one, people felt that the journalists weren't asking questions that they wanted answered. So around this time, particularly in Melbourne, where I am, there was a lot of confusion about what the rules were around this, you know, quite draconian lockdown that we had going on. So so there was that. People felt that those sorts of questions weren't being asked. The other issue was the media conferences were dominated by representatives, journalists from News Limited. And I don't think it's any radical thing to say or anything new to say that News Limited is a media organisation with a very particular right-wing agenda. And they were prosecuting that agenda in the manner in which they were asking questions of Daniel Andrews. So I think a lot of people in that situation sort of felt a bit, not defensive of Daniel Andrews, but, but could see the News Limited agenda and thought that that was dominating things the way this was presented by particularly news limited media was that you know we were all in some sort of stockholm syndrome with daniel andrews that we you know we were all i stand with dan and completely uncritical of him and i and i think you know maybe there was a little bit of that but i think you can't understand that response without understanding how resentful audiences were of the way in which News Limited in particular were prosecuting their agenda through the forum of the Daniel Andrews press conferences. So just to sum up, there were two things. There was, there was the fact that key questions about the process that we were going through weren't being asked. So people thought that they weren't and, and weren't getting information that they needed to help them deal with the lockdown. But there was also this very strong feeling that this very particular political agenda was being prosecuted by the news limited journalists at the press conference and people jacked up against that as well.
0: So, Ingrid, you do amazing sort of media critique on Twitter. And one of the things I noticed, the tension between journalistic practice and journalistic ethics.
3: Yeah, so public interest features heavily in the journalist code of ethics. But public interest only is a determining factor when it coincides with the self-serving interests that Tim was talking about. And when it does, so when the interests of the politicians, the centre of power, which the journalists align themselves with, coincide with public interest, that's when we see journalism including public interest, and they often take the opportunity to point to that and and lie and pretend that public interest is always a determinant, but it's not. Public interest. Will, all, will fall by the wayside if it's not consistent with the interests of the political class. And when I say the political class, I mean the politicians and the political journalists, particularly the press gallery. I, I um, largely have my focus on the Canberra Press Gallery, again, because that's where the sort of, you know, largest centre of power sits. But I was also watching some of the Dan Andrews press conferences and the apologetics from... Uh, you know, the collegial apologetics from other journalists who are not News Limited, and it was Margaret Simons who's not a News Limited journalist. She she probably was at some stage, and that's one of the problems, is that all the journalists are aware that they either were or are or will be News Limited because it's such a tiny audience in Australia and such a heavily concentrated market in terms of, of employment. She said, oh, maybe audiences just don't understand how the sausage is made, which Tim correctly pointed out sometimes a sausage is just a giant shit sandwich it's not it's not a sausage you know and, and personally I think sausages are also disgusting but it's, it's and the contempt I mean I read journalist apologetics for the practice of journalism in this country political journalism and I can feel their contempt for the audience I feel like I open up my newsfeed each day to see journalists insulting my intelligence I think that there's just not any kind of appreciation by journalists of the level of collective intelligence from a whole range of expertise out there on social media criticising them. I mean, they're not all media analysts, which is something I've done as an academic as well as on Twitter. But, you know, people bring all sorts of people. There's data analysts out there. The work that Justin Warren does is incredible. Asher Wolf, you know, Richard Joglin. There's so many people with so much knowledge and they are still got their, you're your speaking to 12-year-olds hat on.
0: Why do you think their reaction has been so defensive? I mean, you sort of mentioned power.
2: I was kind of focusing on the News Limited journalists, but the extra point that Ingrid just made is that it was other journalists as well who got very defensive of the criticism News Limited journalists were getting. And we did really see this circling of the wagons. It's just a straightforward professional class Thing. they they relate much more heavily to people in the situation that they understand within that profession than they do to you know we're the people who are the consumers of this stuff but you know the, even that speaks to another divide that's at the center of all of this you know it's it's that divide between journalism as this commercial enterprise, which it very obviously is, and its role as a civic organisation as well, to use all the the usual cliches where they speak truth to power and afflict the comfortable and and comfort the afflicted and, and all those sorts of moral positions that sustain the role as vocation clashes with the commercial role that they fulfill where most of them, especially in Australia, where which is dominated by the Murdoch media, where the commercial interests of the Murdoch empire are actually primary to a lot of the journalism that's done. So, you know, it, it's the clash of those things. Kind of, I, I don't know what Ingrid feels about this, but I, I, I sort of, you know, I, I get the difficulty that journalists have in sitting on that nexus, which also includes, you know, it's where they earn their living, etc. So their, their loyalties are divided by self-interest as well in, in the way that anybody with a job has, has that sort of self-interest. It's just that journalism fulfills this very, is meant to fill this very specific civic role in society as well. It's very difficult to do that when those other things clash with it. So what you see is the professional barriers come up and and it's much, you know, the knee-jerk reaction from most of them, not from all of them, is to be defensive of the profession rather than attentive to the audience.
0: You're with Communication Mixdown on 3CR and today I'm talking to Ingrid Matthews and Tim Dunlop about the role of journalism in liberal democracies, whether Australian journalists are adequately fulfilling that role and how they might be falling short. Why do we need journalism, especially when it seems corrupted?
3: So the media as the fourth estate, right, is a pillar of power alongside the other three. This is in the Westminster model, which is a sort of Update or modernization of the feudal model of the estate. So, under feudalism, you have the church is the first estate, the lords, the landed gentry, are the second, and the commoners are the third, the peasantry. And that's reflected in Westminster. In the House of Lords, you've got the church and the landed gentry, the, the lords, temporal and spiritual, and the House of Representatives, which is the commoners, which was adult males who owned property. That was the commoners, right? And in fact, the English didn't bring property ownership conditions, age, and gender parity into the universal franchise until 1928. So women over 30 who owned property got the vote in 1918 and men who don't own property got the vote in 1918. So they're very late comers. And one of the observations that I make about the myth of egalitarianism of Australian society is that is actually Australia through English eyes. And white Australia saw ourselves through English eyes, certainly right up until my parents' generation. And in 1899, Our drafters of our constitution sent off this document that went, yeah, look, we can't really take the vote back off women in South Australia. It's all a bit complicated. We'll just give chicks the vote. We'll make it all the same age. And the English went, what, and no property restrictions? And of course, there was all this aristocracy and, and convict descendant and, you know, just this class society, which of course the English set it up. So obviously it's riddled with class. And they all just went, you know, just everyone over 21 can vote. And the English went, oh, it's so egalitarian over there. So we think we're really egalitarian because the English saw the franchise for all adults over 21, regardless of property ownership gender, and went, oh, they're really egalitarian over there in Australia, mate. And then they signed off on it right? So the British Parliament passed our constitution sitting in its imperial capacity of governing over its colonial assets and sent it back. And then it was constituted into law by the freshly minted Parliament of Australia. And that's how we became a federation. So, you know, we don't have a revolutionary origin story in this country. Mm. We have sort of, oh yeah, mate stuff, you know. Uh, So the three estates... These days, we look at the Westminster model and we say there's three branches of government, there's parliament, executive and judiciary, and the media as the fourth estate slots in as a fourth pillar of power, which is competing with the other three for control and domination, which are the central organising principles of any patriarchal society, over the public sphere. So parliament governs the public sphere, the judiciary judge, pass judgment on how the laws are made and how they apply to the public, you know, whether it's a crime or whether it's an executive decision like cutting you off semlink or sending you to Christmas Island instead of letting you grow up in Queensland, those sorts of decisions. And then there's the media at Fourth Estate. And, and in this, this imaginary democratic world, the job of the media is to hold the government of the day to account. That's the myth.
0: Why is it a myth?
3: Because, as Tim said, they're corporations not elected officials, they're not on the public payroll, they're corporations. And so even though this idea of the media of the fourth estate holding government of the day to account, and they do have a civic duty and an obligation to report in the public interest, so they're meant to be a check on power for, this is in this role of the fourth estate, of the government of the day. So the go—they remember when media used to always talk about broken promises? When was the last time you ever heard a political journalist ask about broken promises? Right? That's just not a thing anymore. But what they used to do was go, well, okay, these people want to be in government. Here's their set of campaign promises, their policy platform. Now they've gone to election. Now they've won. Have they implemented the policy platform that they took to the election? This is part of the democratic process. Their job is not to hold the opposition to account. Their job is to report the opposition policies so that there's more than one party competing for government, because if there's only one party, that's not a democracy.
2: I think this is the other context for what happened around the Daniel Andrews press conferences is, you know, if there was a third aspect to them, it was this sense that Andrews was being held to, you know, it's fine to hold Daniel Andrews up. To scrutiny and make him accountable for the failings of the Melbourne quarantine system, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the other thing a lot of people were objecting to in that context is where the media were singularly failing to hold the federal government, Scott Morrison and co, to anything like the same standards. So it was, again, it was just this exposure of this huge gap between the, the myth and reality of the role of the fourth estate where, you know, they were functioning much more in the interests of their corporate owners rather than the audiences on whose behalf, you know, they allegedly are fulfilling that role.
0: In a way, it seems we're at an impasse, right? So there's a fourth estate type role that we want journalism to fulfill. Because someone has to do it, but it's all corporatized. What is the way forward? How do we remain an informed and engaged public while being served by people with clearly problematic agendas?
3: I absolutely support the rise of independent media and the Patreon. You know, to, um, accounts like Tim and and the, and he has colleagues of a very sort of similar demographic. I mean, I don't subscribe to anything because I'm poor myself, but Andrew Street is one, isn't he? And that Neil yeah, guy.
2: yeah, Andrew's great.
3: Um, up the and... I, I,
2: I think one, one of the main ones to point to outside, well, not outside that model, but outside Patreon is Michael West, um, yes, he's
3: doing
2: fantastic for, former age journalist, who on my understanding lost his job at the age because of the sort of investigative work that he was doing. But he's, he's managed to set up the yeah, Michael yeah. West website which is supported by, it's one I subscribe to, it's like five bucks a month or something like that. I'm sure he's not making a lot of money out of it, but he's doing amazing work with a range of often young journalists or people who aren't journalists but are doing journalism sort of thing, you know, people with expertise in particular areas. So I think that model really works. I think we probably should maybe say something about the idea of the public broadcaster, what role they play in all of this, because I think they've often fulfilled that sort of backdrop role, favouring civic over commercial journalism because they're not, strictly speaking, a commercial enterprise. But clearly that model's failing us at the moment as well.
0: Ingrid, can you kind of talk a little bit about the failings of the public broadcaster?
3: Well, the ABC is a corporatised entity, And these corporatised energy, we saw this with the discussion around Christine Holgate and Australia Post. So it's a wholly government-owned agency that has in its constitution and under its enabling legislation that it has to put the interests of the customer and the shareholders first. They have two shareholder ministers, these models. They did the same with Rail Corp. They did the same with a lot of things. And so the shareholder ministers of Australia Post were the communications minister and the finance minister from memory. Obviously, the ABC is a much, you know, it hasn't been corporatised to that extent, but that is the corporatisation model. And again, I think that there, it should be mentioned about the very small pool of employment for journalists in Australia. And then there's the collegiality, you know, the professional loyalty And I think we should probably talk about. I think, Rima, you mentioned this in one of your emails the media diversity, who tells Australian stories report. So every single executive of a major newsroom in Australia is a white male. Um, Mm. The vast majority of the profession come from exactly the same, exactly the same class background as Liberal Party politicians, so they went to extremely expensive schools. They believe that they're self-made, that they've reached that position on merit, even though their parents paid for that very expensive school and made that decision when they were five or 11. Then they go to Sandstone universities, they buy property in Sydney, they marry other people of the same class, and even though there are now more diverse voices in media, which is fantastic those people cannot be expected to change the dominant culture. You would know this yourself as a woman of colour, Rima, that the idea of, oh, we just employ more people of colour and then it's their responsibility
2: to change the white people. Like, Mm. how does that work? The the problem is structural Mm. at the end of the day. So you you can have really good people. I've, I've written about this, you know, even good journalism happens somewhere and that somewhere is that corporate space and all of those patriarchal structures that go with that, etc. So it, because people say this about the, you know, the Australian for instance, all the time. Oh yeah, but they've got good journalists. Well, yeah, maybe they do, but big deal. It doesn't matter. The criticism that I do means I'm kind of persona non grata with most um, media organisations. I do send them things occasionally and try and get them published, but it's, especially over the last two years that's become much much harder it's it's quite rare and it tends to be the more marginal outlets that are are willing to to take my stuff i can kind of do that because you know i'm not going to be out on the street because of it but it's it's still a cost that you carry apart from being annoying shall we say Uh, but i i mean i just I think that's one of the things that bugs me most about this whole audience journalism thing that happens is so much of the journalist's case is built on this notion that there's somehow this public space in which everyone can participate. And that's just clearly not the case. They are still gatekeepers and they're very partial about who they let through. So a Steve Bannon is going to get through somehow an openly white supremacist because of his associations with power than somebody who's going to do a valid critique of the role of the media, who is less well-known and doesn't have that aura of power about them as well. You know, it rewards power. It doesn't reward powerlessness.
0: It also doesn't, it doesn't reward thinking. (laughs)
2: yeah well I think that's I think that's true too there's a limit to the sort of I I was asked to comment on the role of Q&A in public debate which you know the the bad show yeah yeah well you (laughs) know I mean it's it's just a classic case of of setting up ridiculous oppositions and you know you, you just need two people on this side yelling yes and two people on this side yelling no and you know you've got a show and I you know put those views to the journalist who was interviewing me who in turn put them to the producer of Q&A and his or her response I can't remember his or her response was you know we're not running an academic seminar as if there was nothing between shouting yes and no and an academic seminar, you know. It was, it was a completely anti-intellectual response to what I was saying was you can actually have a format like this where you can have a decent discussion about stuff that doesn't have to be turned into yes, no, yelling, mm-hmm. confrontation for the sake of it. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be, you know, an, an esoteric discussion like you might get at a university or something. There is actually, there's a whole range of options in between that. And it would be nice if we could go slightly more towards the thoughtful end of that spectrum rather than at the shouty end of it, which is where Q&A sits. You know, the, the argument always is to be, look, audiences aren't engaged. They're not interested in this. They're not into politics and stuff. And then when social media kind of put a lie to that by providing people with a platform through which they could in, engage, then the argument became, well, it's the wrong sort of engagement. You know, you're all partisan. You're too rude. You know, you're not civil enough. The the goalpost shifted as soon as the platform was there for Because, I mean, that's the thing about social media, about Twitter. It is their most engaged audience, you know. It is the people who care and they hold them largely in utter contempt. Yes, it would be nice if we could just shift (laughs) even just a little towards a more sophisticated and nuanced discussion rather than, this notion that the audience just wants to hear shouty stuff because they really can't handle anything more than that.
0: That's all for another edition of Communication Mixdown. Thanks for joining me and a special thanks to Ingrid Matthews and Tim Dunlop who took the time to share their thoughts and expertise with us all. We're going out tonight with a song chosen by Ingrid. This is Tracy Chapman with Born to Fight.
1: I was gonna fight hey. Said I ain't been knocked down yet I was gonna fight hey. I Tell you I'm the surest best